Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, bong, and welcome to Maniacs. Bong, the Big Ben of Brexit podcasts. Like bell-loving Bellend, Frank Mansoir, we rely on your generous donations to make a noise. I'm Dorian Litsky, and I have three venerable national institutions with me. Ian Dunn's book, How to Be a Liberal, is out in May. Hi, Ian. Have you worked out how to be a liberal yet? <laughs> no, yeah, no spoil, don't spoil the twist. But I'm 97% of the way there. Okay, is it, is it easy? Uh, no, quite difficult, actually. Quite difficult, yeah, okay. that's, that's quite demanding. Um, now, personally, I can handle a few bongs. Do you think... Um, <laughs> Have at buckets. Do, do you think that Brexiters uh, care about these culture war signifiers more than Remainers do? Remainers seem to find it sort of quite... I don't know anyone who's angry about the idea of, of Big Ben tolling us out of the EU. I think it's this kind of land grab for the neutral political space in the country. So it's the same thing as the coins, right? And the same thing as the stamps. Of like, There's this stuff that's just about the neutral, non-political, non-tribal space. And if they can claim that, mm. they get to say, well, look, the whole country is now on this great adventure, swashbuckling across the sea. And that's the sort of pivotal point for them. So I think I don't question their emotions over it because I think their emotional status is a desire to just sort of iron us out of reality, to, to pretend that the entire country wants exactly the same things that, that they want. So no, I think they genuinely do really profoundly care about it. And then, of course, because I'm a, basically a fucking child, as soon as I realise that they care about it, a part of me is just like, you mustn't have it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what it is. You're just, you're not allowed it. Also returning for her first podcast of the 2020s is co-editor of LSE Brexit, Roz Taylor. Hi, Roz. Hello. Um, you quizzed your colleagues about their predictions for 2020 and they're calling a hard Brexit pretty much across the board. Is, is there anything to look forward to? Any, any soft spots? <laughs> well, I, I'm not so sure that we can exactly look forward to it. Um, one of my colleagues, Simon Glendinning, who's a professor of philosophy, he uh, decided to quote Vic, uh, Wittgenstein in, in this um, prediction. And he put it quite interestingly in a way. He said, if we think of the world's future, we always mean the place it will get to if it keeps going as we see it going now. And it doesn't occur to us that it is not going in a straight line, but in a curve and that its direction is constantly changing. Now, that sentence is very Wittgenstein. But 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 essentially, um, he's he's kind of hoping that things might veer off in a direction that we haven't thought of yet, and that might be a bit better. Well, one thing to look forward to. That was basically the speech that uh, thing he had in Jurassic Park about the drop falling <laughs> differently on the glass every time by chaos theory. Sorry, sorry no, for that interruption. Well, one thing to look forward to is the 2022 Festival of Britain. Um, Martin Green, who planned the London 2012 ceremonies and Hull's Year of City of Culture, is lined up to lead it. Um, it's been called in some courses press festival of Brexit, which makes it sound rather less appealing, as if it's going to be headlined by Nigel Farage and his boogie-woogie orchestra. Do you feel that by <laughs> 2022, and because, uh, you know, of, of, who's, of who's involved... Um, should we be th should we be think dreading this as a festival of Brexit, or do you think it could actually be something rather more um, upbeat and uniting? 
Well, I don't think it will happen, first of all, because um, there will be many more important things to think about. I think it will end up being very, very small scale. But what I'm kind of hoping for is some sort of double act mm-hmm. with Michael Caine and John Cleese and, and a couple of other high-profile Brexiteers and maybe Sean Connery sort of coming in down as, as James Bond, but in a post-Brexit era. So it would be like the 2012 uh, Olympics, but a pathetic pale shadow of that. <laughs> That's what I'm envisaging. It would be the Labour Live of 2022. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Alex Andreu is writer, actor, singer, cook, man about town and all-round good egg. Um, Alex, just like in The Apprentice, the final five Labour leadership contenders are sorted and the final five deputy leadership candidates. Some got into the next round by the skin of their teeth, including Romaniac's fave Richard Bergen. Um, Has the deadline passed for people to join the Labour Party or its affiliates to help choose? Uh, Okay, so by the time the podcast goes out, which will be either late on Thursday or Friday, right? It will have passed for the supporter scheme. But I looked into the rules in a bit more detail and it seems there is a bit of a back door in that people have until the 20th to join an affiliate organisation or a union. There are loads of those. They're listed on the Labour um, Party website. So you could join, for instance, LGBT Labour, Uh, which is 15 quid a year, or you could join Labour for Europe, which is 15 quid a year, you could join the Fabian Society. And as long as you've joined before the 20th, then you have until the 3rd of February to register as an affiliated supporter and get a vote in the election. So still time for entryist fun. Yes. (laughs) Good. Um, A poll of Labour list readers puts Rebecca Long-Bailey in front of Keir Starmer, 42% to 37%, and with second preferences taken into account, she would win, according to this poll, 51 to 49. Uh, Do you think this is accurate? Do you think this is Labour list readers are a particular, lean a particular way? Okay, well, Labour list leaders is a particular sample of, I guess, Labour people who are quite actively interested and involved. I don't know whether that skews it any particular way. I have no reason to doubt the results, but the the Labour list person that commissioned the poll was on Politics Live today, and she was saying that that doesn't take into account, for instance, people joining now under the supporter scheme or affiliates and people like that. So it's just Labour members. And also what you have to remember is that Corbyn was elected... On the first one, I think it was 59-41, and the second leadership uh, election was 62-38. So for the continuity person to be 51-49 and moving in the wrong direction is not a particularly good position to be in for Rebecca Long-Bailey, I should think. So she came out top in Salvation today as well. Which didn't please me very much. Well, but, yeah, what? But, but you'd expect it right now. Well, because, but, uh, for instance, the same poll found that uh, Lisa Nandy had incredibly low recognition, yeah, yeah. even among Labour members. So you would expect that as people mm. get media exposure, you know, after her Andrew Neil interview, that particular mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, percentage will shoot up. But Keir Starmer was on top in the first poll, wasn't he? Was I don't remember no, if that it wasn't, was YouGov when I was away. But. Yeah, it wasn't the it wasn't a a, a Salvation Labour list thing. 
Mm-hmm. So, no, I know. Yeah, it's yeah. a different company. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you're still not tracking movement in the same poll. I think once we get the second and third ones, you'll be able to track movement, which is always more reliable than the actual percentage. Well, hopefully the people that want Labour to win the next election will come out on top. Um, I have have sworn not to say negative things about any of the candidates and I'm holding to that Uh Hmm, I'm going to put this Richard Bergen Pez dispenser in front of you and see see how your will holds up it will hold up I'm finding it very socialist Pez socialist Pez Can I say, by the way, that I literally just filed a piece with iNews about how angry I am about the Big Ben thing. <laughs> oh, wow. Classic Ramona. Um, today we will be trying to swerve the personalities, factual affiliation and haircuts in the leadership race to look at the Labour Party's future policy options. What should stay from the 2017 and 2019 manifestos and what should go? And what sort of Britain will Labour be looking at, even if it does win the 2024 election? Plus, we know what Boris Johnson thought about business during the Brexit campaign, but is it possible to govern on a fuck business platform? (laughs) And later in the show, has Britain actually done the EU a favour by Brexiting? All that after a few reminders from Roz. Don't believe all you hear about the Red Wall. In some places, it just needs a little grouting. Our next live show is in Remain Voting Liverpool on the afternoon of Saturday the 15th of February, and tickets are on sale now. And we can announce that our special guest is the Liverpool Echo's political editor, Liam Thorpe, who will be joining me, Ian and producer Andrew at the beautiful Epstein Theatre. We'll be talking about how Brexit has changed politics in the North West, asking whether the Red Wall really has gone blue, looking at where the Remain movement goes from here and serving up the usual low-quality Brexit jokes too. Tickets are on sale now at ticketline.co.uk slash Romaniacs. Patreon people, as always, you get a discount on as many tickets as you want. So, if you're not backing Romaniacs on Patreon, now's a good time to start. We had a surge of backers after the election, which was really encouraging to everyone on the show. If you need more encouragement, the bonus Ask Romaniacs podcast, exclusive to Patreon people on the $5 tier and upwards, is out this weekend, with the panel answering your Brexit questions. Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. And it's ticketline.co.uk slash Romaniacs for our live show in Liverpool on Saturday, 15th of February. Thanks, Roz. First up, back to Labour's post-election post-mortem and the party's future. We're hearing a lot about personality, ability to communicate, who represents the real spirit of Labour and so on, but not enough about policy. And the next election is only 59 months away. The next leader will have to decide what from the last two manifestos to continue supporting and which to deposit in the dustbin of history, alongside loom bands, fidget spinners and Chris Williamson. (laughs) In, (laughs) Keir Starmer has been talking very fondly about Labour's 2017 manifesto rather than last year's. Mm. Um, What what do you think kind of, what, what was the major change there? Obviously, it isn't a manifesto that alone that decides an election result. Um, but what kind of went wrong between the 2017 and the 2019 one? Or maybe right? In some I think ways. it's fundamentally like a quantity issue rather than a quality issue. Like most of the policies that are in the two, 2019 one weren't, weren't that bad. You know, I mean, the broadband thing, you'd think, you know, why does it have to be free, for instance, would be one of your main questions. You know, you can nationalise something, but it's not free. Nationalised trains aren't free. Um, but with most of them, you thought, well, this would be fine if this was the centrepiece. But with the vast majority, I mean, there was about 24 centrepiece policies there, all of which sounded very expensive. So I would suggest that the central thing is not very complicated. So the 2017 manifesto looked radical, but realistic. 
And fundamentally, it was a social, it was a kind of social democrat manifesto, right? It was restrained, it was controlled, it was believable. And so you might think, actually, you know, fuck it, they might actually be able to do this. By the time you get to 2019, they just jammed that shit full of anything they could fucking think of. And I do feel that there was a two-week period in the election where every time I woke up on the Today <laughs> programme, a Labour figure was promising billions for something. <laughs> and there was a time where you're like, come on, man, come on, let's be serious. Well, there seemed to be um, a contradiction in the messaging that I was just constantly hearing both that uh, it was a transformative radical socialist program and that it was just perfectly ordinary social democratic mm. not that <laughs> not really that different from Ed Miller what mm. are you so worried about mm. and it was like you can't it was constantly telling people this is going to be really radical and then someone would go oh no radical and they go no not radical fine common sense solid popular common sense policies and then you know and then they walk off and go okay great and then they go radical mm-hmm like it just seemed to be entirely uh, inconsistent what they were what they were telling people. Yeah, and their message across pretty much every issue was hugely inconsistent. It was very hard to get a handle on what anyone was really talking about during that period. And that comes down then you go back to the leadership issue and basically where was the leadership? Where was the sense of you know at the beginning of Keir Starmer's leadership, the people were impressed that he had a grid. Like it's not impressive for a politician to have a grid especially saying like I want to think when I am saying stuff so that I can maximise the attention but there's just been so little of that. I suspect it's surprising in the current Labour Party. Exactly yeah. (laughs) Fuck me it shouldn't be. Which says a lot doesn't it? But to be fair, I mean, I think Labour were really pushing the idea, unsuccessfully, by the way, during the campaign, that uh, what they were advocating was not radical in the context of the rest of the EU. But as we know, the British electorate are not necessarily interested in hearing about what's happening in the rest of the EU, and they don't think of themselves as Europeans. So that was one of the reasons why that gambit fell flat. Yeah, it just seems sort of ridiculous. Like, well, it has to be, you know, what defines kind of moderate or radical, whether you like it or not, is what happens in your own country. You can't just go, well, if in Sweden, mm. <laughs> free brown brown would, would be fine. would be totally normal. So we're, we're not in Sweden. I, I hate I, to be pedantic, <laughs> but we're not. I heard a thing that I really liked in the GIST podcast who were quoting us this week oh. from after the election. And so I was listening to it, and he said something which I thought was very well expressed. Was it a quote from you? For, no. Then <laughs> <laughs> I'd be quoting me, you dick. Um, no, he said, is moderation the policy or the tactic? This is key for left-wing parties to decide. Are you going for centre-left, middle-of-the-road policies or are you going for a radical manifesto that's delivered in a managed, incremental, step-by-step way? But, and that yeah. was, I think, what Labour never decided. But, they wanted to do all those things in five years and pretend that it would be you know, hugely smooth and managed. Well, you see that in the leadership race as well. I do think there are certain words which really resonate with the base, if you see in kind of uh, some of the statements... Long Bailey, Bergen, so on. Like just the number of times the word socialist appears. Mm-hmm. Radical, socialist, very, very exciting uh, inside the party. Um, not necessarily instantly popular in the nation at large. Mm. And so I was, the idea was to, to, to be as radical and socialist, but, you know, to act radical and socialist without necessarily flagging it up as such. And the idea was to basically normalise, and I wonder if we've got another 
you know, we've we've got almost five years, maybe the thing to do is to normalise these policies. Because if you introduced broad, free broadband, nationalised broadband now, you know, by 2024, either it, the policy would have been knocked down or people would just go, oh, we've been hearing about this for years. Mm. Isn't that the look, thing? It's it's like look, the, the, normalised the, stuff. In my view, the Labour Party is just not modern enough. and And that is a key part of the problem. So they talk more about ideology than policies. I'm not interested in the 150-year-old ideology that underpins stuff. Important as it is, I'm interested in how it translates into practical, everyday stuff. And I think so are voters. So we have to find a way to translate that because out there in the country, for decades, the Tories have been seen as the practical ones and labor as the ideological ones and those two things are seen as mutually exclusive i don't agree mm. they're not but that's the perception and the only person who got over that bump was tony blair and that's why he won three elections because he was seen as practical he defeated that massive obstacle so when you say we're going to give everyone free broadband by 2030 will broadband be a thing in 2030 why are you promising this huge infrastructure project that may mean nothing when you could say we will make we will uh, keep 6g state owned we know there will be a new mobile technology coming up and that every time it's sort of put out to the highest bidder why not just say which is a cost neutral thing next mobile technology we're going to keep it in house yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I agree with Alex in that, uh, it, for me, one of the big problems with Corbyn's administration, apart from Corbyn himself, or Corbyn's leadership, apart from Corbyn himself, was that he was continually looking backwards. And policies like rail renationalisation was a key example of that. Actually, not that many people in Britain take the train very often. Uh, you'd, you'd be surprised how few it is. It doesn't matter that much to people. Yes, it's a policy that a number of people will say who might or might not remember when the trains were nationalised. Oh, yeah, that's a good thing. But but it's it's not going to be key to the huge challenges, the huge new challenges that politics is going to face in the next decade. And, you know, it sounds like cliche to even say it now, but things like climate policy, things like mass migration, these things are going to be so much more important than renationalizing flipping trains. And Of course. Uh, yeah. And there's not enough forward thinking. There was too much. Well, you know, this was what Labour did in the past, so it must be right. There's most of it's an internal left wing debate, isn't it? Same with the word socialism, because it was taboo for so long under the Blair leadership to use that word. To say it now is proof that, OK, we're putting all the Blair stuff to bed. It's essentially part of an internal left wing communication about Blairism. And I think the same is true with the trains. Like You would not spend that money in that way, if, even on transport, even if transport is your primary concern, you'd throw all of that money at buses. Obviously, you would if you really care about the poor. Yeah. But that's not what it is. It's really a reversal of the 80s privatisation, which is the kind of privatisation that yes. really, really stuck. But those are the buttons that work. Those are the mm -hmm. buttons that sound like Bergen. You know, it is that kind of like, it's it's the Durham Miners Gala and Cable Street and the kind of the, <laughs> yeah. gl the glories yeah. of old. It's always, always. And I don't know why the Labour left. And the Tories don't do this. The Tories aren't constantly going on about the achievements of mm. um, Tory governments way back when. And, oh, when we beat the print workers at whopping like they don't <laughs> you know what i mean they, they don't they don't really care in the same way that like, it's, it's sort of like i remember bridget phillipson wrote a really good piece about this a few months ago just about that sort of suffocating 
nostalgia and insistence on the roots and the way to kind of appeal mm. to the to the, the base is always to just be like to bring up the names of the the flags of the past and and all that and it's a it's a particular thing which sometimes I can find very kind of moving but I don't know whether it's very useful winner. I don't think it's a vote winner <laughs> mm. you know it's like I love Billy Bragg's Between the Wars as a song I wouldn't make that the manifesto <laughs> <laughs> but even nationalizing utilities, there is a modern way of expressing that. You could, for instance, say that we will introduce a non-subsidized state player in all those sectors. You know, Northeast Railways was run for a time because the franchise collapsed by a government department that was a completely independent agency, wasn't funded by anyone, had really good uh, response from the public who were traveling, got really high satisfaction um, reviews, and was putting money into the government coffers. So if you express it like that, that next time we, you know, we advertise a franchise, the estate player will also compete for it, for it on the same terms. This is the frustrating thing, isn't it? When people say socialism, or when you get the sort of, you know, the lunatics, uh, the the sort of right-wing think tanks who constantly, you know, use the word capitalism and, and sort of think of the free market as the solution to everything. I don't really know anyone in fucking normal life that thinks that capitalism or socialism on its own is the solution to all problems. Pretty much everyone is aware of market failure. Hmm. Pretty much everyone is aware that if you have an, you know, that you don't want the state to make your fucking T-shirts. So on that basis, you have to think, well, how do we make it work? And in Europe, you often see interesting ideas, exactly along the lines of what you're saying, of dealing with this sort of thing. You see it in many countries across the world, but as long as we're just stuck in the nationalisation versus free market, sort of like these two fucking bricks just smashing pointlessly against each other, yeah. we're not going to fucking get there. When the battle is, how do you keep a mixed economy honest? That's the only show in town for both right and left. How do you keep a mixed economy honest? Honest. So let's say what from those those two sort of Corbyn era manifestos um, should be kept was really valuable because I think I remember, you know, the 2015 one under Ed Miliband was very, it was like very thin and uninspired. I mean, there were some good ideas, mm-hmm. but overall it, did, it, it didn't sort of dream big. Um, so what from the Corbyn era do you think was would you definitely want any future leader to? The immigration stuff outside of the European issue was mostly very good. So closing the detention centres, I think closing Yarl's Wood. Um, most of the immigration policy stuff that I saw, I think there was also a challenge on the spousal visa system, which is particularly a, a, a obscene. Um, so most of the immigration policy that I saw from Diana but was, was very strong outside of the European free movement issue where they sort of endlessly oh. prevaricated, you know. I would keep nothing, Um, not because there's nothing there worth keeping, and there may be things that are very good policies and deserve to survive, but I think a manifesto is telling a story. It's putting together a narrative, and I think cut and paste from an older manifesto is not the right way to go about it. You have to decide what is the story we are telling the country, what is the vision we are selling, and then knit your policies into that. Mm. Um, Ross, Lisa Nandy uh, has sort of come out swinging Andrew Neil interview speech. She seems to have lots of um, policy ideas that she's put forward and then also ones which she just kind of put forward in response to, to Andrew Neil's questions. Um, what, what sort of impresses you about her uh, plan so far? Um, she's clearly been thinking for a bit longer than most of us about towns 
what to do about the problem of towns falling behind in England and in Scotland and in Wales. Um, and she's she's been on that for longer. So I think she's got more of a sense of Labour, uh, how it could work as a regional force and how it could link in with councils and how there could be more devolution. So I think for me, that's the most impressive part of her, her perspective so far. She did make this comment, Labour should have backed freedom of movement, but the party let an obsession with the EU get in the way of internationalism. Mm. I was puzzled by that. I didn't really see it as an either or. But. Yeah, I got. So like, I think that her best critic is uh, Jaminda Gianetti, who who writes for politics at Credit Ukraine quite a bit. And he's really been focusing quite a lot on the devolution stuff and the European stuff that she's saying. I think he's the most sensible critic that she has. Um, his point on this, I think, was sound, which is to say, OK, fine. So you supported free movement throughout the last three years. Now, you didn't exactly talk about that very much. Now, that, that's all right. You don't have to do that. But yeah. if your speech is all about how Labour didn't talk and didn't support free movement, you kind of do need to have a record <laughs> of having yeah. done exactly that thing. And she doesn't. So I was still pleased to see her say it because she's saying, I want a close relationship with the EU. I believe in free movement. You're like, fine. What you're basically talking about is single market membership because you've gotten over the stuff. Not that it matters, but you need to criticise what the government does with Brexit. You're going to have to have an alternative proposal, some sort of you know parallel path that you could have taken. Here's the prize you could have got. And on that, she seems to be on the right page. But there was a bit of a trace of hypocrisy in the way mm. that she put it across. Uh, and thinking ahead to 2024, obviously we haven't quite left the EU yet and there's a transition period. There's like a lot can happen. Some of it might not be good. Um, <laughs> in terms of talking about sort of policy at this stage in the leadership contest, is it just sort of, do you just have to sort of give people the gist and maybe one or two ideas that you think are going to have like a long shelf life? Because because really, you, you know, you don't know what the country is going to need. Absolutely. Yet. And this is not the time to come up with your full policy proposal. It's not even, it won't even be the time in two, three years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It won't be the time until you go into an election. That's when you do it. However, when you say a, an idea, it's still, in, by virtue of it being scrutinised, you will start to solidify it. And, and there's the murky world where the solidification turns into policy. So yesterday, during the Andrew Neo interview, he asked her, I thought very sensibly, okay, so when you talk about devolution, what do you mean? you know, selective schools? Do, do, do people get to make that call? You start thinking about on health policy, right? Exactly which calls is it that people get to make yeah, on yeah, this yeah. sort of thing? And once you do that, these are tough questions. It's really easy to say devolution. Everyone likes the sound of that. Once you start saying what that actually entails, it's harder. And I think by the end of it, she finished and you were like, okay, so they clearly won't be able to make decisions on selective schools and they clearly will be able to make decisions on wind farms. And so policy starts to sort of shuffle out by accident. And that's probably, that's not a bad way of it happening. Do you expect, Alex that we're going to come out of this leadership contest by the end with actually quite a lot of exciting ideas being voiced and not just simply, I'm more socialist than you, or I'm more so. eligible than you. I hope so. And and so far, it's been encouraging, I mm -hmm. think, the way, mm -hmm. the way the debate has gone. It's been quite open. It's been nice seeing people not throw their full weight be behind one of the candidates too early. I think most people have kept a reasonable distance. One of these people will be leader of the opposition. And we just need to give ourselves the emotional and intellectual space to not be distraught by who that person is. Um, to, you know, you just have to give yourself the mental space to say, okay, they all have their positives. Some have more oh, negatives than others. I can't, quite, I can't others. quite go that far. I, I would feel I would be okay with every. But if but if if Long Bailey gets it, I 
the the extent of my despair will be epic because you'd you'd have taken away from me any credible chance of being able to challenge criticize the government scrutinize it but also to replace it within any kind of you know within even any any kind of even medium test i would be fucking distraught if she gets it i can't pretend all those the others i think i look at nandy i look at phillips i think i look at starmer and i think these are all really impressive candidates with something to say and i could live with any of it i can't live with her and, and i think by that point i would be like look anyone with a brain left in labor you've got to get the fuck out now you've got to try something else because that would be the only way of retrieving some sense of hope okay but but i think the time to do that is at that point oh yeah absolutely um yeah. Uh, i don't think it's particularly helpful to this debate to be saying um to be basically negatively focused i think it 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 will pay to be positively focused uh, what are the positive qualities if you have nothing nice to say about someone say nothing at all uh, what are the positive qualities of the candidates you do like it's it's just a much smarter way of good, going about good it good point death to continuity communism <laughs> 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 Next up, fuck business two, two fucks, two furious. <laughs> 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 Fuck business was the prime minister's infamous rejoinder. <laughs> When challenged about the economic effects of a hard Brexit, and now business is saying fuck you right back. According to Bloomberg, Brexit has already cost the UK 170 billion dollars, which is about 1 trillion post-Brexit pounds. <laughs> Uh, somebody on Twitter, I wasn't able to confirm this, alleged that that was more than the UK's net contributions to the EU since 1973. No, is that it, correct? It, no, it will get there right, okay. by uh, early next year. So, Because okay. they're predicting that it will be another 30 billion by the end of 2020. Right. And so they're saying at some point early next year, we it will have cost us more than we've paid in in 47 years. Wow. Yeah. It was just so. They didn't put that on the side of fucking bus, did they? <laughs> I actually didn't believe it. I just thought, oh, this is just. No, it's totally true. Wow. It's true. This follows the news that Andrea Leadsom is stopping her weekly meetings with business groups, including the CBI, and changing to a broader monthly one. Which, let's face it, they'll be relieved about. <laughs> would you want a weekly meeting with Andrea Leadsom? <laughs> yeah, would, would you want a monthly it. one? <laughs> Why not just make it them all together? Annual. <laughs> It's like a visit to an annoying relative once a year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the CBI have this week urged the government to allow them into the post-Brexit trade talks because they say we don't have enough time to complete the negotiations. So it's a bad week to be in the CBI, unless you really don't want to see Andrew Leadsom. So, Ross, that $170 billion figure, um, how is that calculated? How reliable is that? Well, that's a big question. Um, I can tell you that uh, the LSE uh, Centre for Economic Performance did some uh, number crunching before Christmas and came up with, they didn't come up with an overall figure, but they came up with an impact on various things. And the, the, pro the problems is that the pound is now 10% down on its pre-vote value. Um, and yet, despite that, exports have not gone up, which you would normally um, expect to have happened. Then there's the fact that wages are stagnating. Um, there's the fact that inflation is up. GDP is down. All these things are having kind of downward pressure on people's incomes. Um, and so I don't really know why people have not yet noticed this. I think there's a general disaffection um, with politics and with life in general in Britain, the sense that 
we will be, once we are out of the EU, we will be free and it will all magically transform and get better. And this is just the ghastly, you know, limbo uh, holding pattern. And we know with one bound, we will be free. Uh, I think once we are out uh, of the EU and once we are past the December proper exit date, people will be start have to confront uh, start having to confront this was well, it looks like there isn't going to be an extension beyond the year the end of the year and so there's not enough time to sort of get a full deal done i mean how can businesses prepare um, what can they bank on they can't really very prepare very well um, because it's also uncertain i mean uh, it's unclear that whether Johnson will get a deal. I think most people think he will get some sort of bare bones deal, but the question is what, how, how much it will cover, and it will almost certainly not cover services. So if you're in that, you're going to be making every effort to move as much of your business as you can out of Britain, if that mm. is feasible. <coughs> and you're not going to be investing in Britain, which is also really important. So those are the two things that are going to be happening that right now. It's worth adding to that, that that we talk about sort of goods and services like they're two sort of homogenous blocks, but actually they mix up all over the place. So let's say you're IBM. What are you? Are you a goods company or are you a services company? You're Hewlett Packard. You know, what are you, goods or services? If you're a car, even the car firms, classic goods company, they're usually involved in the financing that allows people to pay for the car monthly. So they are essentially in this a sort of mini bank as one of their functions. Now that's a service. That's not a good. So on all of these... We tend to look at it as these solid categories. But in fact, for, for most businesses, especially most big businesses, it's all sloppily mixed up together. Uh, Ian, f- folk business, you know, was kind of a, a useful message uh, for Johnson in this kind of, because business was, was the elites and it's a very good sort of message for Brexiters and you're kind of like a just a guy who gets things done and doesn't worry about the, the establishment. Um, can you govern on that business, especially if you're a conservative? I love the way it's governed on that basis. I love the way that you've just started saying the word business for like every other sentence in there. And then it's funny to be like, can you govern on that fuck? <laughs> um, I think you, you can, you, you can, well, he is sort of governing on the basis of fuck business because as Roger just said, you're not giving them any time to prepare. If you're going to get, you're not going to come up with a text of this agreement until late. The way that business would prepare for that within the weeks left open to them before the turning, it's just crazy, completely crazy. This would never happen. The political space to do that existed and currently exists because of Jeremy Corbyn. Because business are ultimately more scared of Jeremy Corbyn than they are yeah, a crazed Brexit Tory party. Right. And that may or may not continue to be the case with Long Bailey. I, I'm not sure. She could turn out to be slightly different, but one would expect it to be similar to that. If you suddenly have someone like Starmer in charge, I think that space suddenly narrows to you as Boris Johnson because you will have someone on the other side who's being a credible face to business, who's going to be clearly saying to business, come to us, we promise we're not going to nationalise everything. (laughs) We're not just going to go full Chavez on that shit, I promise. So on that basis, I think he would have a more limited room to manoeuvre, but there's no guarantee that that's what's going to happen. I think we're not going to go full Chavez is a winning slogan. <laughs> <laughs> Just half Chavez. That should be, that should we'll be put ha- on the beret. We'll like strut around a bit. I just love that instead of winning together or whatever her slogan is, it should be we're not going to go full Chavez. <laughs> but do you think that, you, sorry, can I just, can just add one point to that? Do you think that there was something about Corbyn that was uniquely off-putting in that sense that, that, that Long Bailey you know even though she's in that tradition she's, she's a different personality she's from a different generation mm-hmm. she's got different kind of associations um, do you think that they're particularly um, sort of business repellent qualities 
of, of Corbyn, you know, inevitably cannot be repeated, that Labour can only be... Is that too optimistic? I don't know. No, I, I did, it's perfectly possible she could be that. A, she could be more canny. She could quite easily do the thing that we were talking about before, going, well, look, we'll do two to three big left-wing issues. We'll put those in the manifesto, but everything else is steady as she goes, and that's what it... She could easily be that. She could also be someone that it, it looked like she wasn't so aggressive in the manner she wanted to do it. The whole proposal could be, look, we need to shake, we need to shake things up. You've seen the way this country operates. We need to have a more equitable distribution of wealth. But that doesn't mean that we don't treat companies with respect. That doesn't mean that, you know, when when we approach them, it's not as enemies, but as colleagues that we can work with in a German capacity of saying, you know, we'll have workers on the boards for remuneration discussions and Mm, blah, blah, blah. mm. She could be all of those things. The truth is, I don't really know. I, I don't think anyone really knows right now. All we really know about her is that the continuity Corbyn guys thought she was their best punt Mm. for the continuity. That doesn't necessarily mean that she will be. But for Johnson, fuck business also has another uh, value because it's a bit of a dog whistle to people who are perhaps the new Tory voters in the red on the red, red wall and new people people who have turned to him because they are keen on his populist message. Mm. Because fuck business means fuck the city, fuck London, you know, fuck all these things you don't like. Fuck you know, mm. Lord Business kind of Lego movie style. <laughs> fuck business. It's it, it, it it's it's basically saying um, I don't care as much about these big financial institutions and about this big money-making machine as I do about you, you poor downtrodden people. And that is a key populist trope that he's playing with there. But imagine that the fortunes uh, of businesses post-Brexit are somehow connected to the fortunes of the downtrodden people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, um, I, 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 I'm not imagining that. I'm fully, fully aware of that, Dorian. Um, I am no, nearly... no, 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 no. Sorry, no. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, do you think... Um, do you think that if Leave supporting it... I mean, we've been talking about it ever since 2016, but you, you think after Brexit, if Leave supporting areas start really hurting... Um, do you for, do you see a point at which the economic impact of Brexit is going to kind of yeah. turn leave voters against Johnson or will they just find yeah. somebody else to blame? Yeah, I do. It's when unemployment starts going up. That's when it will kick in. I, d- I don't see it. Um, I mean, I, d- I don't see climate sceptics with sort of a third of the world burning and another third drowning and another third melting. I don't see them stepping up and saying, oops, yeah, we got this wrong. Um, It's creed. Um, That doesn't mean that it won't translate into government dissatisfaction. Mm. And it doesn't mean that you have to convert everyone. I think one of the mistakes Remain made and one of the mistakes Labour made in in its general election strategy and continues to make is this, a, this wish for a Damascene conversion of the really hardcore people that they will suddenly publicly self-flagellate and say, we got it wrong, Labour is great, or we got it wrong, Brexit is terrible. That will never happen. And it's actually damaging to your real goal, which is to nibble at the edges, at that 10% around the edges of all those issues who just don't feel strongly enough about it and whom you might convert so the, so yeah so basically relate to what Ros was saying they don't have to blame brexit they just have to be annoyed with johnson they, they, they do, don't yeah. have because if they blame brexit that means they may have to blame themselves whereas i don't weirdly i feel that people who voted leave they feel that they cannot t- 
turn against the idea of Brexit because, you know, apart from like a few people like Remain and Help yeah, people yeah, and yeah, so yeah. on. But generally they feel because that means that they messed up. And yet when it comes to general elections, people don't seem to feel like that. You know what I mean? If you vote Labour and they've let you down, you vote the Tories and they've let you down. There isn't that same feeling of like what an idiot I was for voting for them. So I, that people are more willing to turn against Johnson than against the idea of Brexit. It's true. And it's easy to see Johnson as operating in a vacuum because he has a large majority. But actually, you know, the the country is still 53-47% roughly against Brexit. Now, if that percentage begins to change even fractionally, if it goes to 55-45, if it goes to 58-42, the more that moves, the more likely it makes a softer Brexit because he doesn't operate in a vacuum. It is difficult. The more uh, support slides away from you, the more difficult it becomes to pursue the grandest version of your plan, if that makes sense. The more it forces you to add water to your wine. That's a Greek expression. It's nice, no? (laughs) It is very Greek. (laughs) Um, I think that point is, is spot on. And we have, like, after, on February the 1st, we're kind of liberated from having to have the discussion about whether Brexit is a good idea. Mm. And we're suddenly, and that is an advantage. It is an opportunity that we should take. It doesn't mean that you stop, that you think in any different way. It just means the question isn't stop doing this because it, it has already happened. The thing will be, how are you doing it? And the argument of the government's making a fucking shambles of this is a strong argument that people will latch onto quite easily. Yeah. The idea that you could portray Boris Johnson as he's good at warbling, but he's got no eye for detail, and look at how that's fucked us now, is a strong argument that can work for years. And we look at those areas. What are the areas that are going to be most affected? It's not London, which is actually a very global city and can, can sort of deal with the hit from Europe because it has lots of interests outside in the globe. It's not Scotland, because actually it's not very required on European... It's Midlands and the North are the areas that are going to get hit hardest. The most leave areas, the places that voted for Johnson. And the task will be to link his inadequacy and the inadequacy of the government with the performance of what is going mm. on in those places. That's how you... And I think key to that will be to give people a little bit of time and space rather than keep hitting them over the head with it. It will be much more effective to go back to people in six months and say, do you see this thing that was promised? Has everything turned rosy for you, rather than ask them daily, because that just entrenches them. Mm -hmm. That just makes them say, yeah, I love it. Bong! (laughs) Bong! (laughs) (laughs) What really makes government work? And why do things go wrong? What's really going on in the engine room of policy? Every week in Inside Briefing from the Institute for Government, we look at who and what determines the way that we are governed. You don't just leave a pot of money on the side of the road for businesses to pick up. Three and a half years after the referendum, six months after we were supposed to have left, every single option is on the table. We're obviously in a very odd time where things can change in a matter of minutes. You can get Inside Briefing from the Institute for Government every week on your favourite podcast app. Finally, Donald Tusk has spoken smoothly of his sadness at Britain's decision. But could our exit and the continuing negotiations make the EU stronger than ever? That's the argument forward by the author Tony Sarnecki on LSE Brexit this week. 
Brexit is now a damage limitation exercise for both Britain and the EU, he says, but the EU can turn it into an opportunity if it rethinks its one-size-fits-all four freedoms as a set of concentric zones where you don't have to buy the whole package. One advantage is countries with a political bias against EU membership could join a zone like the single market. Places like the EFTA countries, or whisper it, Britain, where we are right <laughs> now. Um, Ros, do you think that Britain has done the EU a favour? And, you know, will perhaps force them to, to sort of rethink and be sort of stronger in the coming years. Yeah, possibly. Um, certainly, we are very diff- we've been a very difficult partner. Um, I do think, though, that the solution that uh, Sonetsky has is proposing is not a new one, actually. it's come up, It came up in around 2016. Um, mm. One very prominent Italian academic came up with this and the idea of concentric circles uh, for different levels of membership of the EU. It's been knocking around for a while and uh, it's superficially appealing, but it's going to take a very, very long time to actually happen if it ever does happen. I think as well, you need to ask, it's not just about economics. It's not just about who's in the euro, who's in the single market, who's in the customs union, things like this. The way the EU is moving at the moment, and which Ursula von der Leyen made very clear in her speech at the LSE last week, is it's very going to be very preoccupied by the Green Deal, which is trying to get Eastern European countries and Central European countries in particular on board for tackling climate change. And it's going to be very preoccupied with security as well, because there is a new emphasis on making Europeans feel secure in Europe and a new commissioner whose job is basically to try and not quite create fortress Europe but to make the whole place feel uh, to promote western values to promote european values to create a sense of europe as a place so you've got to ask yourself whether britain will be on board with those as well um or not or whether we want to go our own way not just economically but in these terms as well because inevitably if we're talking about security in europe we are talking about some variation on a european army and you know how brexiteers feel about a european army and many people who aren't brexiteers to be fair so there are plenty of problems with this proposal that said you know i like it uh, but there are problems with it <laughs> um Ian, the piece argues that Britain was right to have problems with the way immigration and trade works for us inside the EU. We went about it the wrong way. It's a bit late now. The horse has bolted. The horse is dead. But was there a way Cameron could have got the concessions he needed and still kept Brexit MPs and voters happy? No, Britain did fine with immigration and trade in the EU. In fact, it did very well indeed. Um, the Cameron mistake isn't really then. I mean, he did kind of all, all right, given where he was. The, the Cameron mistake is rather obviously promising a fucking referendum so that you can do better in local election results, which we now can barely even remember on the basis of a threat from your far right. You know, so that's the error. Not really the renegotiation. But if you are going to try and renegotiate, or if you think at any point you do need to renegotiate terms with the Europeans, you probably shouldn't spend the first few years of your administration and your leadership of the Tory party alienating them and slagging them off and pulling out of the central, the centre-right, you know, grouping in the European Parliament and making sure you have no alliances there to rely on. So look, that isn't sensible. But in the great score sheet of catastrophic twat-ups that Cameron is responsible for, I'd say it's fairly (laughs) minimal. Well, Johnson claims that the UK rose to greatness because of our championing of global free trade and we'll return to greatness after leaving. Um, But obviously our championing of global free trade uh, did come from colonialism and the risk of being a snowflake I don't think Empire 2.0 is a goer. (laughs) 
<laughs> what does I he even if they mean? called it championing at the time. It's like, we'd just like to champion <laughs> this massive warship. Yeah. And if you could possibly, you know, do whatever the warship yeah. fucking tells you to do. That'd... People running to the coast. <laughs> global free, mother, global free trade is coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. So, I mean, what does it, what does it even mean? To, I mean, I was saying earlier, obviously, that Labour is kind of, there's a side of Labour that is sort of stuck in the past. But my God, <laughs> <laughs> this whole kind of buccaneering Britain, how do you, how do you have a kind of post-colonialist version of that? Well, you don't. You can't. Um, because you don't have the population to take advantage of. We, we, there are no longer countries out there to go and occupy um, there are no longer women who will work for free. There are no longer children that will go up chimneys. We've run out of all that. Uh, and so, if this, if this was an article in the Spectator. This would be a sad thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the point is, um, we are a small island with a relatively unhelpful population curve in in terms of uh, age distribution, and we need labour. And we have to get that labour from somewhere. I mean, it really isn't rocket science. Mm -hmm. And it is precisely the same people who loathe um, poor people having loads of children, who loathe free education, that also despise immigrants. And it's like, well, you got to get the labour from somewhere. We mm -hmm. can't all fucking play golf. <laughs> we can't all spend our day playing golf as a country. In terms of trade, um, there is this kind of Brexiteer dream uh, about taking advantage of the, ex -com uh, of, of the Commonwealth and ex-Commonwealth countries. So the people generally call that Kanzuk, who are into it, because it stands for Canada, New oh, yeah. Zealand, yeah, UK. Yeah. And the idea is that you would... Get, uh, you would revive trade links with them, which is difficult because it is always more difficult to trade with countries which are farther away as opposed to ones which are near, like the European Union, which is the major obstacle. And you've got big market of people on your doorstep. I flew um, to Australia before Christmas and it's not as far as New Zealand and it's really far away. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> nope, I don't know if you know this, yeah. but it's like crazy far away. I'm still, I'm sure, like our milk exports to Australia <laughs> is a really good idea that will go terribly well. Incidentally, the trade deal with Australia uh, collapsed just after New Year. Not that it's that wasn't been, me. Not that it's been <laughs> reported in any meaningful way. But basically, uh, Britain was trying to engineer a way where we had free movement between Australia and the UK, and the Australians basically closed down the negotiations. Said that's a deal breaker for us mm -hmm. um, because they know that what we're trying to do is pinch the doctors and nurses. Because yeah. we've closed the door mm. to the ones we used to get. So they're saying, no, piss off. We're trying to get more of them to come here, not get, not make it easier for them to go somewhere else. The reality of modern free trade is pretty simple and can be summed up in one word, which is alignment. And that is precisely the thing that Boris Johnson has said that he does not want with the EU. So... You can either believe in the idea that Britain is going to set itself up as this standards regulation superpower who everyone else will emulate and they'll all start driving on the other side of the fucking road and they'll all start copying us. And absolutely great. That's the narrative that they've got. Or you can believe in objective reality. And in objective reality, there are two superpowers when it comes to this issue. One of them is the US and the other one is the EU. 
and you are going to join one of those, but you are just going to be sucked into one of those orbits. That's as simple as it is. You can happen now or it can happen later. But when we talk about global free trade, that's what it is. Trying to reduce obstacles to sending stuff. Those obstacles are regular, regulatory. You're sitting there thinking, how do we make this cheaper? How do we make this more environmentally yeah. safe? How do we make it safer for consumers? This is, people will want the same thing when you make products. So they, they harmonize, they align, well, they mostly align. And we have to decide where we want to fit in that ecosystem. And the fact that we've left Europe won't make any fucking difference about that whatsoever. Ros, finally, um, obviously, when we were still trying to remain, we, one of the slogans was remain and reform. Could this zoning idea lead to a kind of movement that people who want to rejoin over time, obviously we're not in a rush, uh, can get behind? Kind of, you reform and we rejoin, but we'll actually be rejoining a different zone. Does that kind of... Does that kind of make, does that give give more room for manoeuvre for Europhiles in the future if that were to be the new structure? Uh, yeah, but we're not talking about it happening for quite some time yet. I would be amazed if any such, you know, zoning thing happened with before the next five to ten years. So you are thinking quite long term and I think Remainers may want to concentrate in the meantime on... Uh, wins that, that, you know, shorter term wins. <laughs> um, and that might mean, that might mean, you know, things like uh, making sure the Labour Party in particular and whoever leads the Labour Party next is as aligned with European thinking as possible. Mm. So getting them on board with things like the Green Deal and making sure that if we do rejoin any kind of zone, that we're ready to do that and not just ignoring Europe as a force, as a cultural, as a political force and moving completely towards the US. I mean, they all have a different... There's varying track records, actually, on um, on various sort of Brexit votes. Do you think there are any among the leader and the deputy leader candidates, are there any kind of hardcore, you know, Eurosceptics in there? I mean, is everybody to some degree... Uh, pro-European in that more broad, you know, when we're not talking about breaking down whether to vote for this deal or that deal. I mean, Thornbury, who does not, we don't expect to get very far, had a bit of a wobble at the beginning. If you remember, she was quite Eurosceptic at the beginning of the process. And then by the end of it, she was dressed up in a European flag, like some kind of insane mascot. So I don't know what she's been. She's been on a journey, on a journey. Um, and Bailey, I don't, you know, it's possible to tell. Once again, we just don't really know what Bailey thinks about stuff. How much of it is just being within the shadow and being very loyal to yeah. the shadow cabinet. So maybe she'll come out and be completely different. But obviously, if there is a fear of Euroscepticism in the Labour leadership, it will come from her. The stuff that we've heard from Nandi, who was always, you know, mm. quite cautious, quite distant around this stuff, has actually been very, very positive this week on free movement, on staying close to Europe. You put it together and you think, well, yeah, good, good stuff. But, yeah, and, and the we mustn't make the same mistake that we make during the Brexit process, which was that we look at everything from an Anglo-centric point of view, we have to look at it from the European point of view. Because I think people underestimate what a catastrophic breach of trust mm -hmm. Brexit uh, has been from mm. the European perspective. Yeah. We've reached the end of the show, and we've still got space in the Brexit time capsule where we'll soon be burying all the things we'll miss when we leave the EU. We want you to nominate the last thing to go in the capsule, so send your suggestion to info at romaniacs.com We'll read out the best one and the winner will get a special mug and t-shirt set. How do we how do we pick the winner? We'll just we'll just have a chat amongst ourselves and decide it. There'll be like a voting system. Oh. And then there'll be a oh. second round. You've really thought about this. Everybody must nominate. We will have we a redistribute. Really then we then we talk to the affiliates. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> LGBT, we talked to LGBT Romaniacs, the Jewish Romaniacs movement, and so on. Romaniacs for Europe. Europe. Yeah. It's, it's, going to, it's going to take literally months. Yeah. And we'd also love to hear if anyone has creative plans for long-dreaded B-Day at the end of the month. What will you be doing to feel better while Mansoir is taking a hammer to Big Ben and social media is an uninhabitable hellscape? This week's foreign language clip is in German from listener Vanessa Hiller. Auch Hoffnung ist eine Frage der Perspektive. Zehn Jahre raus, zehn Jahre draußen, zehn Jahre wieder rein. In der Zwischenzeit bleiben wir eure Freunde und drücken euch die Daumen. That means hope too is a question of perspective. That's one for you, Rolf. Ten years out, ten years outside, ten years back in. In the meantime, we remain your friends and keep our fingers crossed for you guys. Oh, Thanks, so Vanessa, and Germany. I love the way that she also just predicted Brexit too in 20 <laughs> years' time. It's like sort of hopeful, but also... No, it's 10 years out. No, 10, 10, years, 10 years outside, 10 years back in. I don't quite know. Nah. Anyway. It's very nice. The Higher Education Policy Institute says there's a crisis in language learning. It was a big mistake to scrap compulsory foreign languages at GCSE. So keep those clips in different languages coming and educate the nation. <laughs> Send something short to info at romaniacs.com and we'll use the best ones. And that's it for today. Thanks to Ian, Roz and Alex. Now it's time for our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. You can get a free download and find out about their new album, England is a Garden, at ampleplay.co.uk. Patreon people, keep an ear out for that bonus episode of Ask Romaniacs this weekend. And here's some thanks to our latest backers. Hello from me to Matthew Neal, Chloe Hamilton, Megan Short, Pierre-Yves Poulikin, Matt Ashton, James O'Shea, Ross McMahon, Dominic Fraser, Charlotte Davis and Paul Bishop. Tim Sears, Emma Brown, Sasha, Dylan Evans, Charlotte Maisman, Deidre Daly, James Kent, Joshua Drain, Karen Playill, and Michael Connerton. Okay, many thanks from me to Susan van der Ven, Richard Owen, Robin Meltzer, Lindsay Maiden, Danny Daly, Kit Jolly, Robin Stafford, James Minchell, Patrick H. Lork, and Kirsten Stewart. And it's a big thanks for me to Malcolm Sleeth, Mark Williams, Barbara Colson, Scotia Scoot, Joe, Christopher Temple, John Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater Revival, Underscore, Simon Pinder, and Mups. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was produced and presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt, Alex Andreu, and Ross Taylor. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.